Welcome back to GWK, the podcast. I'm your host, David Dodge, and on today's pod, I'm really excited to welcome Denise Brogan-Cater, who is a lawyer and the chief policy officer for Family Equality. We're going to talk about the recent Supreme Court decision today, Dobbs v. Jackson, which just overturned over 50 years of precedent protecting abortion access. So there hasn't been a day that's passed since this decision that I haven't had someone within the LGBTQ community reach out, worried that we might be next. People are understandably concerned about what this horrific decision from a court that hasn't pivoted so much but lurched to the right, but what this might all mean for our marriages, our kids, or even our ability to be intimate with one another. These are hard fought for rights and much like abortion rights, many of us have maybe started to take them for granted. So I've had a couple of reactions to these concerns. First, I totally get it. <laughs> we have every right to be worried. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas in his decision specifically put us on notice saying that he thinks the court should come for these rights and more. So Denise will help us break down why a decision on abortion rights might have anything to do with LGBTQ rights, but also why we should all maybe take a little bit of a deep breath. So this leads me to my second reaction, which is that somewhat lost in the concern folks are having about our marriages and our families is what has actually happened as a result of Dobbs and who is actually being targeted. And that is people with uteruses and people who are or can become pregnant. I think it's really important that while we should be concerned about our own rights, we just saw how easily they can be taken that we also take a moment to recognize what just happened and to show up for the people who have been targeted, which is people who can become pregnant because they just had their rights taken away. <laughs> we should be mad as hell about this and fighting back. And also this idea that I've heard from uh, some in our community that quote, we might be next is a little disconcerting because they're already coming for us folks. <laughs> as Denise and I talk about at length during this conversation, there has been a flurry of bills introduced this year all over the country that are aiming to restrict our rights, and, and they're particularly coming for uh, the most vulnerable among us, including trans people and kids. So the fight is here, folks, and it's not necessarily about our marriages, at least not for right now. I really do hope this conversation helps you all make sense of what's going on. It certainly helped me. Um, there was no one better to talk to about all this than Denise, who has been a tireless advocate for our community and for our families for decades. So please enjoy the conversation, and I hope you'll share it with anyone else who you think might benefit from what we talk about here today. Denise Brogan-Cater, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So again, we're very excited to have you on so we can uh, try to break down exactly what is going on here with the with the Dobbs decision. I, uh, I, I'm i hearing all f uh, from a lot of people in our audience, our followers, a lot of people are rightfully afraid about what this might mean for their marriages, for their adoptions, for you know all sorts of um, other areas of LGBTQ rights. Um, but so why don't we actually just start there? Uh, what does the Dobbs decision say? What did it do? Who is it targeting? Well, I think that's a great a great question. I think that's a great place to start. Um, it's really important for all of us to take a breath right now because it's understandable that people are anxious and, and understandable that this decision has thrown so much into doubt and, and question. But we should never forget that the Dobbs decision directly and intentionally targets people who are or can become pregnant, right? It is the first time in the court's history that I can recall that the court has taken away a fundamental right. And maybe we'll talk a little bit more about what fundamental rights are later. But and and that right gave women and others who are or could become pregnant the power to exercise control over their own bodies, a right that had been in the constitution protected by the constitution for 50 years right so it, this this targets 
people who are or can become pregnant. And that's the focus that I think a lot of people, uh, especially those of us in the uh, LGBTQ space, sometimes gloss over as we right. as we are afraid of what might happen to us and to our marriages, et cetera. So I, I'm glad you asked that question because it's really important to, f- to focus on on what this decision actually does. Exactly. So, I mean, I'm telling the same thing to people that are reaching out to uh, to us about this. And I think taking a deep breath <laughs> is a really good idea. And to, you know, take a moment to really mourn what, what has happened and who it is targeting, which again, as you're saying, are people with uteruses, people that can get pregnant. Uh, it's this, you know, monumental change that's, you know, 50 years in the making. Um, and I think, yeah, we need to focus on who's actually, um, at, at uh, target of this right now. And, but like you're saying, keep our eyes on, <laughs> on the future and what could potentially be coming down, which, uh, you know, again, it's very clearly the case for at least Justice Thomas and uh, many in the conservative movement. Um, so it's not that we're not necessarily at risk and won't be targeted, but again, even where we are being targeted in the LGBTQ community or, you know, things like these bathroom bills and don't say gay bills. And so it's, you know, I, keeping our eyes on what is actually at stake right now and who is actually being targeted, I think is really critical. And I just want to make sure we're baselining this conversation uh, there before we get into um, some of the specifics. So it's not to say um, that these aren't things that we need to be concerned about. So let's actually just uh, let's just take them one by one. Uh, why are people afraid that this might end up targeting uh, same-sex marriage, for instance, the Dobbs decision? Well, um, you know, that's a, that's a deep, uh, that's a profound question, actually. And, and to understand it fully, you kind of have to take a step back and, and get a little bit of education in what the law is and how it got where it is. Yep. So, so let, me just, let me just start off by saying that Roe, the case that Dobbs overturned, Roe v. Wade was founded on what we call substantive due process. Right. There, are, there are two different types of due process found in the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, there's the procedural due process, which means you know, they can't uh, take away your life, liberty, or uh, property without giving you a chance to, to be heard in court, without um, going through certain procedural steps. And that's what we call procedural due process. But then there's this substantive due process. And substantive due process is a way that that rights that are not otherwise enumerated in the Constitution are found to be rights protected by the Constitution. And there's there have been there have been many of those things. The Supreme Court has found unenumerated rights to include such important things as the right to send chil- uh, children to private school, right. the right to marital privacy, the right to travel, the right to vote, the right to keep personal matters private. So those, those among other things, are, are things that we call fundamental rights that the Supreme Court has found um, to exist inside the, the 14th Amendment's uh, substantive due process. Right. Oh, and I just, should, I just should back up and say, if you haven't read this opinion, you really should. And especially, even if you don't want to read all of the legalese and the, and the frustration that is the uh, majority opinion and the concurring opinions, you should at least read the dissent because it's right. powerful yeah, and definitely. it articulates this so much better than I will. Um, but in Dobbs, when the court overturned Roe, it basically said that Roe could not have found a 
fundamental right to abortion um, because it didn't exist in the country's history, long history, and it wasn't wasn't a deeply held value in the country for for a, for a long time. And that is where the red flags come up. They, they also come up because specifically Justice Thomas called out substantive due process. And if you don't know, by the way, substantive due process is also where the court case Loving v. Virginia, yeah, which, which conveniently struck left down, out, <laughs> which struck down anti-miscegenation laws, mm. right? Which allowed interracial marriages across the nation, um, including his own. Too. <laughs> yeah, and 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 I I do just want to point out that substantive due process is something that Justice Thomas has always been against, right? And in the history of the court. In the history of the court, since the since the implementation of the Fourteenth Amendment, he has never found another justice that has agreed with that position. Hmm. So there's never been another justice who says substantive due process is made up and we shouldn't do it. Right. He's the only justice in the history of the court that thinks that has right. thought okay. that, um, and he didn't find anybody on this court to agree with him on that. That said, I think, I personally think, when you want to talk about Loving, I personally think he would have struck Loving down. He would have been happy to let the states decide whether or not people could marry someone of another state. Right. And he would simply live in a state which allowed his marriage to his wife. It, it, that's a very right. incredibly <laughs> privileged and narrow way of looking exactly. at the world. But that's Justice Thomas. Wow. Yeah. I suppose we could take some comfort in that, that no one else has ever found that substantive due process is, isn't found in the Constitution. But the reason people are, are nervous is because the underpinnings of marriage equality and all of the other uh, rights that I previously named, the underpinnings is, in fact, substantive due process. And if the court, in its majority opinion, ignoring what Thomas had to say for now, but in its majority opinion, the court said that Roe couldn't have been decided correctly because it wasn't embedded in the nation's history and, and it wasn't a deeply embedded value of the nation. Well, if that's true and we've now had it as a deeply embedded value and fundamental right for 50 years, exactly. if that's true, then why can't it also be true that the right to marriage for same-sex couples is deeply embedded in the long traditions of this country, right? So that's why people are nervous, right. and, 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 and justifiably so. Right. Not just because Justice Thomas came down where he did, because he, frankly, he's an outlier, but because the court itself undercut and this and the dissent calls this out beautifully. Basically, the dissent says either you don't believe what you're saying or you're lying. Right. And there are no other options, because on one hand, on one hand, they're saying, hey, marriage equality is safe. Don't worry about that. We're not coming after that. And then the other hand, they say, if it's not embedded deeply in the nation's history, then it can't stand. Right.
Yeah, can't have it both ways, exactly. So, right. right, so exactly. So people are justifiably worried for the reasons that you have stipulated. But so let's talk about some of the reasons, and you've already mentioned some that people should be a little less worried, maybe. Um, so one is, as you're mentioning, Clarence Thomas, even though he very specifically said he was coming for these rights, <laughs> uh, is also an outlier, as you're saying. Um, and, uh, you know, so other reasons are that some of the justices on the court have voted in favor of LGBTQ rights. So even if it did come before the court, it's not it, we're not totally sure wh- which way people would, would fall. And again, it's a different court than even the last anti-discrimination case when that was decided several years back. So, yeah, so let's just talk through, like, let's say that uh, we had a case come before the court that was specifically going for some of these other rights. And again, I can't make you predict the future, but uh, let's just kind of talk through some of the <laughs> some of the uh, ways that people might want to feel a little bit better about LGBTQ rights as opposed to what just happened with abortion, which, again, had 50 years of people coming for this, right? <laughs> so it's been a very organized fight for this uh, for 50 years, and they finally, you know, they, they finally got it. So you, you said something that's really important to understand in when you're, when you're thinking about this, when you're trying to frame this or trying to, if you will, which is what I think you're asking, what's the likelihood of this happening? Um, and And you said that it was a it was a 50-year movement, and it was. Right after Roe passed, we know, right? We know that abortion has been a divisive issue, divisive issue in this country in all of those 50 years, and before, and it will be since, because there are deeply held beliefs on both parts. And as long as there are deeply held beliefs, and you're, when you're talking about beliefs, man, you can't just say, well, you have to believe the way I believe. Right. Um, and so there, there, it will be divisive maybe forever. Right. And so right after Roe is decided, there was a groundswell of opposition. And there was born the, quote, right to life, which I think is a misnomer, but we don't need to go there, uh, <laughs> movement that systematically and progressively targeted Roe. And it's ultimately what led to the narrowing of right. Roe through Casey, which was also overturned by, by Dobbs. This was a long-term attack, and it was fueled by tens of millions of people saying, this is wrong, we, we, we should not have abortion uh, allowed. You can't say the same about any of the cases like Lawrence or Obergefell, Lawrence being the case that gave us the right to our own sexual intimacy, right. and Obergefell, of course, being the case that gave us marriage equality. You can't say the same about those two cases or any of, any of those cases that, that we are currently worried about because there is no groundswell. There is no tens of millions of people. Um, and, and part of it is because so I used to be the executive director of Equality Michigan, and I used to go around the state and say, if you can be out, be out. Mm-hmm. Because if you can be safe and be out, be out. Because the more people know us, the less fear they have. And all of the hubbub around marriage equality was around, this attacks my marriage. This attacks the institution of marriage. But ever since Obergefell, you haven't heard that again. Right. I mean, there's no groundswell of people rising up. What, in fact, was happening is, yeah, of course, there are pockets of places where people say this is an abomination and shouldn't be allowed. But, but pockets of that isn't what it takes to 
turn back something like this. It takes a groundswell of movement and, and that doesn't exist. So that's, that's perhaps the most fundamental Absolutely. protection that we have. Yeah. Second to that is, let's say you have a pocket. I don't know, pick a Southern state that just thinks marriage equality is horrific, right? And somehow they elect a group of legislators who decide that they're gonna pass a law outlawing marriage equality or, or denying us our ability to have children or, um, it, or, or, or anything like that. Well, then that will be challenged in court. And that's what has to happen. There has to be exactly a court right. case. There has to be a court case that rises up to the level of reaching the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court then has to agree to hear it. So the fact is, is that right now there are no court cases in the pipeline. There are no such laws that are challenging the right to marry. So that in of itself would at least delay by many years uh, the ability. Then it has to go through that whole process that all of these went through, um, which is have to be overturned or upheld in the various uh, appellate courts, in the various courts, first the district court, then the appellate court, and ultimately the Supreme Court. So that's another reason why. A third reason is, is that many states, like the very first state that found, ignoring Hawaii, because Hawaii changed its constitution right afterward, um, I think was Indiana. Um, I might be, my memory might be wrong. It might be Ohio. Um, it was, but it was one of those I states <laughs> in the Midwest. Um, found a right to marriage in its own state constitution. Mm. Well, the Supreme Court can't overrule that. Right. Um, so there is there is a lot of different protections built around marriage that make it less likely to. Uh, ultimately be overturned by the court. Of course, we know that the chief judge wrote in his opinion specifically that A, he didn't vote to overturn Roe, and B, he thinks that there is no ability to attack Obergefell, Lawrence. So we know we have at least four, certainly at least four justices on the court who are going to be on our side. That doesn't mean we can't lose because only a court can be five to four. Right. But even Alito said exactly. this isn't something. Right. So yeah, the multiple of the justices have come out and said that this isn't something we're necessarily gunning for. Should give us some comfort. But again, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't trust this court as far as I can throw it. So um, so again, good to keep our eyes on the and prize. And even at the end of the day, they can get there. It's going to take a long time. Exactly. And in those in those, what I think of uh, years, but let's just say months or years, we can prepare. Right. We can take a lesson from Dobbs and prepare. Those of you with babies and small kids at home, think about this. A lot of the food you pass in the baby food aisle at the grocery store has been sitting on that shelf for longer than maybe your kids even been alive. This stuff can be so heavily processed and our kids deserve better. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Little Spoon, which has an awesome menu of baby and toddler kid food that is non-GMO and organic 
made with fresh ingredients and absolutely nothing artificial. It's all basically homemade and just delivered straight to your door in a cooler box so you can just pop the meals in the fridge or freezer and heat them up when your little ones are ready to eat. We had a couple of uh, tiny taste testers help us out. <laughs> um, Eight-month-old Logan absolutely loved Little Spoon's baby food blends, especially the guava, mango, apple, and pear mashup. And he loved the organic smoothies as well with hidden vegetables like the sweet potato and carrot cake smoothie, as well as the veggie pack green dream with chai. So uh, with kids' meals under $5 and baby food smoothies and snacks under 3 trying Little Spoon is really affordable. At Ace with Kids listeners can get 50% off their first order with the code GWK50 at checkout, and that's uh, at littlespoon.com. That's code GWK50 at littlespoon.com. So there's a lot of activism that can and should start happening in states to uh, to build up more protections if they're not already baked into their constitution or state laws. I, I think what you were saying about the groundswell and the lack of groundswell for people gunning for these rights in particular is really important. And you look at uh, a statistic I've always found fascinating about Roe is even after uh, it was decided, the support for abortion rights has, has always been, you know, a majority of the country, but it's held pretty steady since then. It's not been, there's like you said, there's been like intense feelings of both sides. This isn't an issue that's been like wavering much in terms of how people feel about it. And with the support, it really is just remarkable. You look at, I'm looking at a Gallup poll here. So uh, in 1996, 27% of the country supported same-sex marriage. This last June, that has risen to 71%. So that's like just a massive uh, swing in our favor, people that are supporting our marriages. And the trend line is very clear. And it's, again, like, so the court is clearly not so concerned <laughs> about public opinion, or they would have maybe been a little bit more careful about Roe, uh, given that a majority of the country supports us. But I think it's really hard to argue that this is something that people are, at least right now, right? Not to say that they wouldn't come for this right now, but they're finding far more success trying to gin up like um, transphobic sentiments around the country and, and coming for our rights, honestly, to be parents. You know, So there's other things that, that they're getting more success on. So you know, those are really where <laughs> we should be focused. And I definitely want to talk about some of those places that I, that I know Family Equality is working on. Uh, but I, just to kind of go down this rabbit hole a little bit more. <laughs> uh, so let's just say that they do. They get a case, like you're saying, it could take years. And they, they do get it before the Supreme Court. And it does knock down our right to access same-sex marriage. Maybe that's going to knock down contraception and sodomy laws and all sorts of... Yeah. So let's just assume the worst case scenario, right? What does that actually mean for our right uh, and ability to marry in this country and to have kids? What does it mean for our parentage? Even in the worst case scenario, how draconian are we looking in terms of our, our abilities to live our lives and uh, marry who we want and have families the way that we want to? Well, you said in the worst case scenario, <laughs> <laughs> um, the worst case scenario is pretty damn bad, right? Right. I mean, because it, it, the worst case scenario goes all the way back and says that Lawrence was wrongly decided. Right. And that would leave Bowers as the law of the land. Um, you know, it's interesting. We talk about courts overturning precedent, and the court has in the past, of course, overturned precedent. It overturned Plessy v. Ferguson, right. which was, a, which was a, a, a law that allowed separate but equal. It overturned that famously in the case of Brown right. v. the Board of Education. But there it expanded rights. It didn't contract rights. Same thing is true with Bowers v. Hardwick. They overturned Bowers. I don't know, something less than 20 years after Bowers was decided, which was a case that allowed states to criminalize same-sex activity. And they overturned that with Lawrence. But again, what did that do? That expanded rights. This is the first time they've ever overturned a right, right. that contracted rights. 
So it's, it's, it's problematic in a whole host of ways. And, and again, I think that's, that's small comfort, but it is some comfort uh, that our marriages are likely safe. But you asked me in the worst case scenario, and if, in the worst case scenario, um, we would be back to the Bowers age. And at that point in time, we would have the same options available to us as were available to the people of that time. And that is elect people who recognize our rights and protect them in every state legislature and all the way up to the federal legislative process, continue to raise court challenges. One of the things about stare decisis is it's supposed to mean that just because the personalities on the court change, the law shouldn't change. Right. And that's exactly what just happened, that the personalities on the court changed, and so the law changed. Well, if we go, if it goes again back to this worst-case scenario you're describing, the personalities in the court are going to again change. Mm -hmm. And when they do, as long as we have elected pro-LGBTQ right legislators and Congress people, and especially senators and presidents, as long as those folks are pro-LGBTQ, we will end up with a court that is pro-LGBTQ. Right. And they will, once again overturn this, what would then be an egregious invasion of our privacy and egregious invasion of our rights. So that's one of the one of the things that would be available to us. But there are others. Back in the day of Lawrence, um, and worse than the day of Bowers, there were still states that protected LGBTQ people right. and their right, right. To, to exist and a right to engage in consensual same-sex activity. And, and those places and more, like I mentioned to you earlier about Iowa, um, that state found it in their constitution. So it seems like an odd place in the middle of the, in the middle of the country, conservative Iowa, but your right to be married will still exist in there because it's in their state constitution and more and more states have found that to be true. So it would be a real patchwork. Right. Second, in, in states, and let's say they don't go all the way back to Bowers, because that would be just, that would be, that would be basically saying we don't find a right to privacy in the Constitution at all. Right. And then that's going to attack every, every person in the country. Um, and, it, and it already is attacking every person in the country, in my opinion. Uh, and so we need to, and I know you'll probably ask me this, but what do we do now? We need to rally our allies. But if they don't overturn Lawrence, but stop with marriage equality, and then it attacks things, as you said, like how we raise families, how we form families, how we protect our, our partners and our spouses. First off, it seems unlikely that marriages that currently exist would be affected in any way. Right, yeah. There is no provision in law other than divorce to render a marriage that was legally entered into at the time of its solemnization, there is no mechanism in law to tear apart that marriage. Right. That just doesn't exist. See, so, yeah, and I, th I mean, this is such an important point, so I'm glad you said it. I just want to emphasize this again. So folks out there that are particularly nervous about their own marriages being coming, uh, even in the worst case scenario, like you're saying, it would be very, it would be very difficult. And this, we have uh, examples of this, right? In California, when it, they legalized 
same-sex marriage and then the Prop 8 um, overturned it, they did not come after the marriages that were legally formed in that state. So we even have a precedent for what this looks like. Um, so I, I just want to reemphasize that, that point. That, yes, that's true. It was also true in Michigan. Right, um, right. Where, where it was available for 24 hours or something like that. And right. in that time, hundreds of people got married and they were still legally married. Right. So yeah, so, so marriages marriages that currently exist will continue to exist. And that's not to say that, that a wild court couldn't write its own law. Right. And, but that would be, that would yeah. be more unthinkable than even overturning Roe. Right. So that's, that's going to be true. Secondly, those people who aren't married, we still have available to us, as we have always had, um, the right to contract. And that means we can do things like powers of attorney and healthcare proxies and wills that protect unmarried partners, um, that protect their relationships. We can still do things like adoptions and exactly. foster care. And, and we can still, and in fact, you know, Family Equality continues to say that everyone who is a parent in LGBTQ relationship should get a confirmatory adoption. Even now, um, right? To, yeah. Even even mm -hmm. now, mm -hmm. even now, even when we have marriage equality, even when we have as much rights as as we have, we still recommend you get a confirmatory adoption, because um, there are always going to be outliers and states and judges who think that it's not that your relationship with your child isn't legally binding if you're not biologically related. Right. If you're a queer man listening to this and you have your heart set on having a biological child, you likely already know how expensive surrogacy is, costing as much as $200,000 or more. Many queer men understandably experience sticker shock at this number and become a little bit hopeless. But there are ways to make having a baby as a queer man more affordable, and one of those ways is with Mosey Baby, which makes affordable and easy-to-use at-home insemination kits. So this kit would be perfect for anyone interested in an intentional co-parenting situation with a friend or a couple, or maybe you're one of the lucky guys who has an incredible person in their life willing to carry your child for free, meaning you can maybe skip the fertility clinic. Mosey Baby's Baby Making Plus Bundle includes everything gay parents to be need to get started on their at-home insemination journey. This includes specially designed insemination syringes, pregnancy tests, ovulation tests, and fertility loop. Mosey Baby has helped thousands of LGBTQ couples and singles form their families in co-parenting or known donor situations, while avoiding a lot of the major expenses that come with other surrogacy options. You can find out more at moseybaby.com and get 10% off your first order with code GWK10. That's code GWK10 at moseybaby.com. Let's um, shift for a second. So I guess just to kind of bring that point home. So even in the worst case scenario, which again is very unlikely, um, we still have protections. We have ways that we can be uh, fighting to form our families. It'll be a patchwork. It'll be, you know, <laughs> like definitely a bygone era we thought was long behind us. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, just to, important to keep that in mind. It will, you know, in that way, it will be similar to kind of what's happening uh, with abortion rights in this, in this country. It's being kicked to the states and it's a big old mess and people are figuring it out. On that note, let's talk about one area that might be a little bit more worrisome for us to keep our eye on, um, and that is potentially access to IVF services around the country. So I know this is something that a lot of people are fearful of, that courts and states are now going to start coming after our ability to create embryos and, uh, and use them as, as we see fit in our family 
creation, like our ability to, to move them or to destroy them when we're uh, done with them or uh, donate them to science. Or, you know, so this is a big part of a way that we form our families through surrogacy and IVF. Let's just, but let's break it down. Let's talk about like how likely that is. Um, and if, you know, what you're hearing at, at all at Family Equality, this is something that folks are really concerned about. We are getting a lot of uh, calls and, and people <laughs> very concerned that this, you know, they're wondering if they should move their embryos out of Florida or, you know, wherever they happen to be if, if these uh, laws start to, to get past that actually are targeting our ways to form our families through reproductive technologies? Great question. And the most difficult question you've asked me so far, <laughs> because <laughs> there, there just isn't a, there just isn't a clear line of thought and reasoning that, that answers that question. Fertility care, such as in vitro fertilization, IVF, you know, is, a, is a, an important pathway to parenthood for, for many people, whether you're LGBTQ or not. Right. And because it involves things like creating embryos and, and it can result in additional embryos, the implications of Dobbs have naturally raised fears in, in folks. You know, Dobbs didn't really talk about this directly, um, but without the protections of Roe, it is absolutely possible that state lawmakers could feel empowered to create barriers. Right. And, you know, some might say that existing abortion bans also restrict or affect assisted reproduction. They haven't done that yet. Right. But they could. Um, in particular, you want to pay attention to states and areas that define personhood. Exactly. Um, and, and especially, you know, personhood is beginning at conception, which is very troubling and would be the path necessary uh, to beginning to attack um, IVF. Right now, I, you know, it's just, it's a state by state um, issue. And the best thing I can say is if you have those concerns, you really should talk to a lawyer yeah. with expertise in assisted reproduction in your state. Right, exactly. Um, and, and that's, uh, I can't begin to address the scope of, of it, that. It is a, it's a tough question, and I, I think that is the best piece of advice you can give is to talk to a lawyer that's familiar with the laws in your state. According to folks that I've talked to about this, including the ASRM, which is like the body that um, is yes. you know, the best regulatory body we have in this space, they are not recommending that folks start transferring their embryos out of states like because they're, it is very telling that they are not coming after <laughs> these technologies yet, right? And I think we have it to our benefit that a lot of straight people need these services as well, you know, especially those that are suffering with uh, infertility. And it's also notable that states like Alabama in its uh, abortion law specifically said this does not preclude people's ability to access IVF and, and create embryos, et cetera, et cetera. They're not coming after this space. But again, like you said, it's not to say that they won't and, uh, and, and who knows, but uh, it is also, it's interesting that kind of the, the right wing that at one point was really coming for this is like, you know, playing God and uh, trying to attack our ability to, uh, to access or to have reproductive technologies at all does not seem to be this deafening uh, like groundswell of, of folks coming for this. Uh, but yeah, so just be paying attention to this sort of thing is, is important as well. But yeah, these seem to be like the main areas that folks are like worried about in terms of their own reproductive care and uh, you know, access to their family formation and marriages, et cetera. Well, I think the, I think the most important thing, um, and, and that is what should LGBTQ people be doing now? Absolutely. And I, I would just encourage you all, us all, to stay involved. If you're not involved, get involved. And if you are involved, stay involved. 
and when I involved, I mean involved with the political processes in this country. The court likes to say it's not political, but let's face it, this was an absolutely political decision. Yep. And the only way it became possible is because we, as a nation, as a whole, allowed it to become possible. And we did that by apathy, by people not voting, by people, you know, by compartmentalizing. Well, you know, I care really about this issue and this issue and this issue. So the fact that this person is anti-choice, uh, okay, I can live with that. And we just have to stay vigilant. So you have to be involved, uh, number one. Uh, number two, I think you ought to get a, affiliated with and associated with an LGBTQ rights organization yep. uh, that you trust. Um, there are lots of them. There's Collage. There's the one I work for, Family Equality. There's the there's Glad, uh, the Legal Advocates and Defenders. There's uh, NCLR. Lots of lots of places where you can plug in. And I would say that if you have uh, specific questions right now that are in your mind, go to the websites of those organizations. FamilyEquality.org will take you to a resource that um, that talks about what LGBTQ plus families need to know right now uh, in light of Dobbs. And there are lots of places that allow you to, to plug in. As a former executive director of Family Equality, as well as Equality Michigan, I would, I would say that engagement by the public, engagement with the LGBTQ community and with our allies, you have to talk to your friends and family, your neighbors, is the best and surest way that we ultimately protect and win and then protect our rights. So give of your time, give of your treasure, give of your talent, join a board, make a donation if you can. Those kinds of things, I promise you, add up. And if everybody does it, we will win this. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, couldn't say it better myself. And, you know, I think finding ways to plug in is so critical, obviously, you know, voting in November, getting out there, making calls, working on campaigns of folks that are pro-LGBTQ and, and you know, pro-abortion um, is so critical. I think for, for me, I, yeah, I would just add to that that we need to right now be showing up for uh, people who have uteruses and people who can get uh, pregnant because, you know, we, exactly. we need to be there for them. So they are there for us. <laughs> we are in this together. We're impacted by the same forces. Um, so it really is critical to me that we, you know, it, if, the, if there is any silver lining in this, it is just a slap in the face that, you know, uh, these hard fought for rights that we've struggled for for decades can be taken away in a second, you know? So even, again, even though we walk through why that's not so likely, I think it's a, it is a good wake up call for us and we need to be showing up in every way we can across the board in a very intersectional way. <laughs> uh, you know, thank you for bringing that back full circle from where we started because you're exactly right. This is about abortion care. This is about reproductive rights. This is about a woman's ability to control her own body. We need to not forget that. We need to show up, as you said, for um, people with uteruses, people who can, people who are or can become pregnant. This is just outrageous. Yeah, yeah. And again, like if they're going to come after someone's ability to control their own reproductive care, who's to say they're not going to come into our bedrooms and you know, et cetera? It goes down a, a you know, a quite yeah. a. A steep slope there. But and so on this note, I do want to pivot now because there is so much great work that family equality is doing. 
that is important for the ways that we do need to be showing up for our own community right now. Uh, that's not so draconian and, uh, you know, we do need to be protecting our marriages and et cetera, et cetera. But so what are some of the things that you're working on right now uh, that people can uh, plug into across the, the country? Let's talk a little bit about some of the onslaught that we have faced, uh, especially um, a lot of this anti-trans legislation and stuff coming for, for kids. Well, you know, again, I would uh, direct people to our website, uh, familyequality.org, because there's a pretty comprehensive uh, outline of that answer uh, right on our website. Yep. But I will tell you that, you know, this past legislative session, we saw well over 300 anti-LGBTQ laws introduced in state legislatures around the so country. This is, this is where they're coming for us, folks. <laughs> so pay attention to this, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and that, to put this into context, that's the most anti-LGBTQ legislation introduced in state legislatures in history. Wow. So it's a, it's a groundswell um, just coming after the community, but they're targeting, not necessarily marriage equality, as we've said in the past, there is no groundswell targeting the destruction of marriage. But there is a groundswell targeting, and you know, there are some parallels here to uh, abortion care because they didn't go right after abortion care; they went at the fringes right, of it. They right. tried to con they tried to nip off around the edges and narrow it and narrow it and narrow it until finally they were able to get rid of it. And you know that could be a similar process for uh, queer rights. Right. And so, as they come after our children, as they come after especially the most vulnerable among us, and, and I'm thinking about our about trans kids in particular. Yep. I mean, my gosh, the, these are children. These are children who are just being authentic to themselves, being who they are, and these zealots are, are actually saying that if you provide gender-affirming care, we're not talking about surgery, we're not even talking about um, drug interventions, we're talking about how you respect a person by right. calling them by the name they wanna be called by, by allowing them to dress in the clothes they wanna dress in. If we try to just protect our kids by doing those kinds of things, states like Texas are saying that's child abuse. Right. Child abuse. Um, so that's, you know, that's where they're coming for us. And that's the challenge. Um, and that's where we must, we must absolutely be engaged, be engaged with organizations like Family Equality and the ones I mentioned, be engaged with your state based organization. Um, and for God's sakes, vote and, and hold people's feet to the fire. You might think I live in a, listen, I live in a district that is dominated by Republicans. I have a Republican representative in Congress. I have two Republican senators. I have, my state representative is Republican. I mean, I am in a heavily Republican district and I still call them every time something comes up, yep. multiple times, yep. because ultimately, if enough of us do that and enough of us do it consistently, our voices are heard and people in elected offices pay more attention to those phone calls oh, than they, they sure do, do any yeah. any other method of communication and any other way of hearing you your opinion. So I, just do that. It's so, so I have worked in local politics uh, in, in New York City before, uh, before my current role now. And 
it's so true. I mean, it's, we literally have teams of people <laughs> that are there answering the phones. And I mean, they listen, they take tallies, they really do pay. To, so this when people say to call your legislators, these are not just empty Please, these are these are this is where people listen to public opinion. Uh, it's not going to be necessarily like you know what's on the front page of the New York Times. They they're listening to their constituents. So even and especially if you live in a district with uh, you know someone that might be um, opposed to our rights in some way, I think that's even more important to be calling and letting them know that there is a, a an important contingent of people that are pro LGBT that are going to be fighting for these rights and, and calling daily when when we need that. Um, so I'm really glad that you said that because it is just like I, I say this all the time. It is not an empty. Uh, request. It is really important that folks do this, and it takes two seconds to pick up your phone. So let's be real. It takes more than two seconds. Yeah, <laughs> okay. it, it 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 does, and it and it feels like in a moment this is this won't do any good. Right. Yeah. Take take the two minutes it takes to do it, and just do it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, so we've covered a lot of ground. <laughs> I really do hope that, uh, again, I think we were talking before we started recording, that my goal with this really is to get folks to take a huge deep breath to, again, mourn what's actually happened and realize what's actually happened, who it's targeting, um, and then to pick ourselves up and realize that we have to fight. And this is, you know, I hope really energizing for folks, especially as we have an election coming up this November, to get out there and to, you know, if, if, if this is the kick in the butt we needed, I, I really hope it is, um, and to really start to, you know, fight back against these hateful state bills that are being introduced all over the country and to look at the lay of the land, you know, see so even these... Uh, even though they haven't come for our marriages yet or our, our rights to serve as uh, adoption or foster care parents are still, it's like the 11 or something like that states that have these religious freedom bills that make it legal to discriminate against us when we're trying to serve as adoption or foster care parents. So there are you know ways um, that we are being targeted in this country that are incredibly important to be paying attention to and to be fighting against. And it really is where I think our, our um, focus needs to be. So I can't thank I you enough again, Denise, for being on and breaking all this down for us today. You know, and I, I do think that it will be interesting maybe six months down the road to see where this is all kind of fallen. I, I think we might have a lot more information then. Um, and so, yeah, it would be great to uh, have you back on maybe then. And we can we can talk through and see where we're at and see where we're going, where, where we need to be refocusing our efforts. Thanks, David. I look forward to that. I hope that uh, six months down the road. Um, we will be past another really important election, and I hope that uh, this had the effect that you, that you so well articulated, <laughs> and it does, in fact, uh, mobilize our, our, our people to get out there and, and stop this stuff. Like you said, there's no stopping us when we actually get together and work on this yep. stuff, so yep. I agree completely. Denise, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you.